Now that Easter has passed last week, we are returning to complete our series on Philippians. Today's message fits uh, very well with our celebration of our risen Savior, as Paul will explain to us how we are to live out our lives as worshipers and followers of Christ Jesus. Before we open God's word this morning, let us seek him in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would guide us through your word, that you would fill us with your spirit and give us understanding, that you may speak through your word and teach us, Lord, how we should live before you. We commit this time to you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Have you ever seen a young child engrossed in their favorite TV show? Or perhaps you've tried to talk to a teenager plugged into their video game, or to a sports fan on the edge of their seat as they cheer for their team. If you have, then you know that if you interrupt them, they will either ignore you, shoo you away, or do something worse, like yelling at you. In life, there are things that we consider so valuable, so important, that everything else dims in comparison. Everything else disappears from our sight as we zero in and focus all our attention and efforts toward getting what we want. We hear stories of people who sacrificed everything for some cause or career or even for another person. We call such people single-minded, determined, obsessed, in love, driven, even ambitious. Well, there's a story told of a, uh, a real estate agent. This real estate agent was saddled with selling an old abandoned factory complex that was strewn and littered with the debris of, of decades. Each potential buyer spent no more than just a few minutes disdainfully gazing at the property before backing away in haste. It wasn't the price of the land that was the only issue. It was the sheer lack of potential to make the land profitable. And so it sat year after year, mired in continual decay. After yet another reluctant buyer retreated from the visit saying, sorry, no thanks. The real estate agent in frustration kicked over a stone. And while hopping around, cursing in pain and frustration, he noticed something under the stone. It was wet, black, and sticky. Grady thought, this land was probably used to illegally dump chemicals. Now no one will ever want to buy this property. However, curious, he returned later with a, uh, a small bottle and a pair of gloves, and he carefully scooped up a sample into the bottle, and then he had it tested. To his surprise, the lab technician informed him that the sample was high-quality, unrefined oil. And the technician asked him, where did you find this? 
Well, the real estate agent gave him a smile and then quickly returned to his office to further investigate. Well, it didn't take him very long to figure out that there was oil under this land and that apparently no one else had figured this out yet. So he decided and he became determined to buy this property. And in his pursuit, he ended up cashing in all his investments and selling what possessions he could, all in order to buy this land. People thought he was crazy, especially his very unhappy wife, whom he needed to uh, persuade and convince. Well, that land is worthless, the lawyer said as he showed the real estate agent where to sign the ownership papers. But it's your money, it's your life. Despite obstacles, self-doubt, the negative opinions of others, this man pressed on to reach his desire with single-minded purpose and cast aside any and all distractions and dissenting voices. In the end, the land he bought proved to be extremely valuable, worth every effort, and he went from being considered a fool to being praised as astute and wise. However, this was only the beginning of the story. It wasn't enough just to own the land and the oil underneath. He needed to extract and sell the oil. It was one thing for him to gain this treasure, but now he needed to fully experience this treasure. This is a modern parable. It's drawn from a short video called Hidden Treasure, which is based on the story that Jesus told the crowds in Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46, in which Jesus compared the kingdom of God with a treasure that a man discovered on property he did not own. So great was his desire to possess this treasure, he sold everything to buy the land so that the treasure would be his. What in life can be of such great worth that you'd be willing to sell everything, to give away anything, to go anywhere just to own it? Well, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, Paul described his encounter with the treasure above all treasures. And in that passage, he detailed all the physical and spiritual advantages that his life afforded him, which he gladly threw away like garbage, all in order to gain the treasure of Christ, all in order to know Christ Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Now, like the real estate agent in the story, this is not the end of Paul's story, nor is it the end of ours as followers of Jesus. You see, now that Paul has gained Christ, he goes on in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16, to explain how to fully experience the treasure that is Christ Jesus. Paul's lifelong goal, his ambition and passion, his single-minded determination was to fully know Jesus, and no distraction, no persecution, no fear, nothing could dissuade him from seeking this prize. So he writes to the Philippian church, 
and indeed to all disciples, calling us to join him in what he describes as a foot race, running stride by stride, striving, straining, pressing on to reach the finish line where Christ waits for each of us. Paul tells us that receiving Jesus Christ by faith is the beginning of life. It's the beginning of our life. Many people have incredible testimonies about meeting Jesus. They describe how Jesus sought and found and rescued them, showering upon them grace and forgiveness, and welcoming them into eternal life with God the Father. The wonder of possessing this new life is that now we are growing in the grace that leads us to know Christ more and more. Here is where, here's where we meet Paul this morning. We join him in the middle of his life in Christ, and he's telling us that the treasure of meeting Christ finds its ultimate fulfillment as we pursue the goal of knowing him completely. Paul's first lesson about living with and for Christ is that we have not yet arrived at our destination. The goal of life is to know and experience all of Jesus, but we aren't there yet, and neither was Paul. He writes in verse 12, Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ has made me his own. We have not yet arrived. When Paul says, not that, he wants to correct any false impressions, lest anyone think he is claiming to already possess everything in the Christian life. He makes it plain that he's not there yet. Twice he says the word already. I've not already obtained this, or am already perfect. Paul describes his current walk of faith by saying that he's not already obtained any of these things. Now, there is some debate about what Paul means when he uses the word this. What has Paul not already yet obtained? Well, what is certain is that this does not mean salvation, because we know that he already is known by Christ. So I, I agree with Hellerman and Fee and O'Brien that Paul means he has not yet reached the point where he knows and experiences Christ completely. This will not occur until a great day in heaven at the resurrection of the dead. So we can paraphrase the first part of verse 12 in this way. Not that I've already obtained or reached the joy of fully knowing Jesus, which will only be realized in heaven. And Paul expands this idea by also denying that he is already perfect. He's not yet a perfect follower of Jesus. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. Now, the idea of perfect can be translated as being brought to completion or being made fully mature, both in a moral and spiritual sense. Paul may well have been referring to those he mentioned back in chapter 3 and verse 2 and 3, where he said to the Philippians, look out for those who promote circumcision. He warns the young Philippian believers that circumcision and any other ritual does not confer any perfection or spiritual maturity. 
Paul stresses that he's not yet a complete or fully mature believer in Jesus. There is still much to, to do, so much to learn, to experience in this life as he serves and worships Jesus. In fact, we are all continually growing in our knowledge and in our worship of Jesus. So since it is his desire to know Christ fully, what does Paul do? Well, he doesn't sit back and say to himself, well, you know, I'm saved, praise God. Time to kick back, relax, and wait for heaven. Instead, Paul uses a very specific word to describe how he now lives his Christian life. In the second half of verse 12, he says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. The Greek word yoko, translated as press on, means to move rapidly and decisively toward an objective. The word describes a clear and purpose-driven action, or as Hansen writes, unrelenting determination to press on despite the limitations caused by present conditions. So Paul's pressing on to do what? Well, he says, I'm pressing on to make it my own. I'm pressing on to know Christ in the fullest way possible, which from chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, includes the resurrection, suffering, and becoming like Christ in his death by any means possible. To make means to, to seize, to grasp, to take hold of something. Paul tells us with clear purpose that he's moving forward to take full possession of the experience and knowledge of Jesus in all dimensions of human life. Why? Because Christ has made me his own. The reason Paul is driven to live this way is because Christ has already seized or taken hold of his life. Here, we are pointed back to the life-transforming experience where Jesus interrupted Paul's life on the road to Damascus. As Paul was zealously pursuing Jewish Christians to punish and persecute, Christ, in the words of Fee, laid hands on him, so to speak, forcefully arresting him and setting him off in a new lifelong direction. So in response to this experience, where Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Paul now presses onward to become the very person whom Jesus has already called him to be. Notice how Paul describes the ambition of his life. I press on to make knowing Christ my own because Christ Jesus has already saved me on the Damascus road and thus made me his own. In other words, because Christ has already, because Christ um, already sees you as the person that you will one day become, your response is to spend your life becoming the person he knows that you are. Let me say that again. Because Christ has already seen you as the person you will be one day, your response is to spend your life becoming the person he knows that you are. Jesus called Paul to know and worship God. And the Spirit of Christ urges Paul 
to embrace and become this person. Do you recall back in Philippians 1, 6, where Paul said, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Well, God knows what you will become, and he will complete that transforming process of sanctification. So in response, like Paul, we press on to take hold of the reason why Christ saved us. Fee says it in this way, the goal of everything is to know Christ, which in the present means to experience the power of Christ's resurrection, as Paul participates in Christ's sufferings, thereby being conformed to Christ's death, so that Paul may attain the resurrection from the dead. As yet, he has not obtained this. So just like Paul, we are all on the road toward the goal of fully knowing and experiencing Jesus. This is both a personal and a shared destination. This is so essential to understand that Paul is not content just to tell us this is his goal, but he moves on in verses 13 and 14 to show us how he is seeking to become the person Christ has made him. Paul writes in verses 13 to 14, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straying toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because we have not yet arrived at our destination, we press on toward the goal in verses 13 and 14. In verse 13, first part of verse 13, Paul repeats his disclaimer of verse 12 by writing to the Philippian believers in a more personal and intimate manner, addressing them as brothers and sisters. He is not above them, but rather with them in the journey. Paul does not consider that he has yet reached the final goal of the Christian life. He's not there yet, nor has he arrived. Remember, Paul is pursuing the very purpose for which Christ first took hold of him. Now in response, Paul structures and plans his life to reach out and to take hold of Christ's purpose and desire for him. In what follows in the rest of verse 13 through to verse 14, Paul frames this pursuit using the imagery of a runner in a race, a runner who has one objective, namely to finish the race and claim the prize. Now before we continue with our text, I want you to watch this short video clip, which I think is a good illustration of what Paul is going to teach us in the next few verses. Now it comes from a, a 2017 Major League Baseball game involving two runners, one of whom is given a head start. Now watch what happens in this 30 second clip. Beat the freeze. They give the uh, contestant a head start, and then watch this guy in the freeze suit. It's the greatest thing I've ever seen. Watch this, folks. I mean, the guy had what a 200 foot head start. At least look at this guy go. This guy is beautiful. <laughs> look at this guy. The guy, the guy yeah. he, he thought he was going to win. Exactly. <laughs> oh, 
Wow. The runner, second second runner was fast, wasn't he? Even with a head start, the first runner couldn't quite make it to the finish line first. Now, when you watch the clip, did you notice that the first runner, the person who had the head start, he kept looking back, back behind him every few moments before being finally overtaken and then falling flat. He didn't even finish the race. In contrast, the second runner, who is known as the Flash, focused ahead. And even when he passed the competitor at the last moment and won the race, he did not even look back. As we come back to our text, I want you to remember these two runners because Paul now tells us that like a runner, he focuses on one thing as he pursues his goal of knowing Christ more and more. In the second part of verse 13, Paul says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. The way Paul writes this, the way it looks in Greek, is this way. It says, on the one hand, the things behind, forgetting. On the other hand, the things that lie ahead, straining toward. In a world of so many good and bad distractions and things to do, Paul says this is the one thing he does. I want you to imagine if you had met Paul and heard all his stories. If you had a coffee with Paul and, and he began to tell you his life story and you sat there, how Christ saved him, how Paul was empowered by Jesus to spread the gospel and plant churches, or how Christ performed miracles through him, it would be and is inspiring. But Paul also would tell you stories of all the times that he suffered, how he received 40 lashes from the Jews on five occasions, was beaten with rods three times, was stoned and left for dead, suffered shipwreck three times, was in physical danger, faced threats, was hungry and thirsty, and faced the constant anxiety for all the churches. At the end of all these stories, you may well have asked Paul, Paul, in the face of all these sufferings, how did you manage to continue on? Well, Paul tells the Philippians, it comes down to one thing. And the first part of that one thing is forgetting what lies behind. Now, the idea of forgetting carries a meaning to disregard, to put out of mind, as with a runner who does not look back over his shoulder to see how far he has run or where others are in the race. He pays no attention to what is behind, but focuses on what is ahead. The idea is to continually, ceaselessly disregard. It's not a one-time action. While Paul still remembered past experiences and achievements, whether they're good or bad, he chooses to pay no attention to them in order to concentrate on what lies ahead. Often we, we tend to read this verse as forgetting about the bad things in our past. We may find ourselves dwelling on or playing over in our minds past hurts, mistakes, sins, or, or wrong choices. These memories can make us cringe in guilt as we think about them. Well, the verse does mean this, but it also means 
forgetting and laying aside past victories and good times. Paul says he orients and directs his life toward the future, forgetting what lies behind without paying attention to a past that would prevent him from the goal of fully knowing Christ. As you look at your own life, how many of us are distracted by looking in the rearview mirror of life? How many of us have said, when I was younger or in my day, things were much better or much worse? Whether positive or negative experiences, we can be tempted to dwell on the past, and in doing so, we can miss the way forward. Yes, the past shapes us, but it should not prevent us from reaching toward what lies ahead. Fortunately, Christ's Spirit within us can heal us from past hurts and lead us away from past glories and successes. It may even mean that today you need to sit down with Jesus and ask him to lead you from your past to reach out to where he is waiting for you at the finish line. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. This is the second part of what Paul does. He's straining forward to what lies ahead. As Paul turns away from the past, he now strains forward, which is described as reaching out, leaning, extending, pushing himself to the goal which he described earlier in verses 9 to 11, chapter 3, where he said, For his sake, that is, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's forgetting. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's straining forward by any means possible. As followers of Christ, like Paul, we are in the middle of the race. Some of us have just started to run, and others of us are well into the race. But if you belong to Jesus, then you are in the race. Don't stop now. Keep going toward the finish line. Hellerman describes this life as living between the no longer and the not yet. So Paul turns away from what is behind and strains forward. But what lies ahead? What is he straining forward toward? He says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We've already met the word press on, Greek dioko, in verse 12, as moving rapidly and decisively forward toward an objective. Now Paul describes the objective as the goal or finish line. The word goal means a, a marker, as in a post at the end of a race, or in today's terms, the finish line. The prize for runners in the Roman games was a wreath and the honor and fame of victory. And Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 9, 44-27, where he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. 
Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. In the Philippian passage, O'Brien notes this. He says, Paul aims to win his prize, not by coming first in the race, but by finishing, and the same reward is given to everyone who finishes. So in the video clip that we saw, the fellow who fell flat in his face didn't even finish the race. We're supposed to finish the race. And the prize that Paul's leaning into and wants to gain is not a wreath of fame or honor, but it is the call of God that pulls us ever upward. This is the initial call to faith, which promises an ultimate prize that will be, that will be received in heaven. Think back to that time when you first responded to God's call in your life. Remember, if you can, how God grabbed your attention, how conviction welled up inside of you that the gospel is true, that you wanted, even needed to be forgiven by God because you longed to be right with him and to know him. Think back to how God's spirit led you to bow your heart before God as you confess the darkness and sin within your heart, and how you reached for the light of forgiveness, which is found only in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Remember how your life has and is changing, all because Jesus has begun a good work in you and will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is the upward call of God in your life. Bringing this call to completion is the goal of our lives as Christians. We strain forward in this life to reach for this goal. And Christ is waiting for each of us at the finish line. And his reward is for us to know him fully. Now, Paul was aware that not everybody in the Philippian church had the same attitude that he has just expressed. Some may have felt that they have already arrived or simply were content to remain as they are. The sentiment in our society may well be expressed in this way. You know, thank you, Paul. Uh, I do appreciate your concern that I grow my relationship with Jesus, but I'm doing just fine. I think you're good, and I don't see any real need to go to this kind of extreme. You know, if, if this is good for you or for others, go for it. But for me, I'm content with where I am. The ambition of life is to press on and run the race toward the goal of experiencing all of Christ. I will always be met by some who think they have arrived. Those who say, I'm, I'm saved, aren't I? So I'm good with God, right? What more is there? Or others who are so caught up with the challenges of life that we seldom have the chance to look up and to see where we're going. Well, I get it. We all know life is complicated and we are busy with good things. And so Paul gently concludes with verses 16 or 15 and 16. And he says it in this way. Let those of us who are mature 
think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We have not yet arrived. We press on toward the goal. And now we maintain a mature mindset or attitude in verse 15. As he has repeatedly done throughout his letter to the Philippian church, Paul treats the believers as equals. For here he writes, let those of us who are mature think this way, thereby including himself. He's leaving it up to the reader to decide whether they fit the category of being mature, and in doing so, he's addressing mature. So what does Paul mean when he uses the word mature? Well, it means spiritually mature, where maturity is about growing and developing toward becoming complete in Christ, which is the work of the Spirit of God. In Ephesians 1.17, uh, 1, uh, Paul wrote this, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of him. Here, the spirit of wisdom is a sign of maturity in the faith. And Paul urges his readers to press on with God, to be mature in attitude, even as God transforms our thinking. Let those of us who are mature think this way. The word translated think is the very same word that Paul used in Philippians 2.5, where it is translated as mindset or attitude. Have this mindset among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Mature believers have this mindset and attitude that Paul has described throughout chapter 3. Namely, we need to strive and press on toward the goal of knowing Christ fully, the goal that will only be reached at the resurrection. And he continues and says, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. Those who think differently than Paul, those who may oppose Paul's position here, are encouraged to listen and receive from God, God's wisdom. It is, not to, it is not up to Paul to convince, rather this is God's work to reveal and persuade. Along Paul's journey of faith, he may have faced times when he considered taking a sabbatical rest, or a holiday, do something else, even retire. Instead, Paul keeps going. Because we have not arrived, we press on toward the goal by maintaining a mature mindset and in doing so, in verse 16, we stay on the course we are on. The ESV translates this as, only let us hold true to what we have attained. The NESV has it this way, however, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. And the NIV, only let us live up to what we have already obtained. The Greek word behind hold true means to stand side by side, lining up or agreeing to follow together. It is used as a military term to go forward in a formation. So it is not an individual, but a collective action comprised of equally committed individuals. We move forward together in pursuit of spiritual maturity with a single unified mindset. We are running the race together 
and not as competitors. What have we attained? Well, collectively, mature believers build upon the faith we have all received. So we follow Christ in this faith at the same time, striving forward to greater maturity, as Paul has just described in verses 12 to 14. He encourages the believers not to lose heart or sight of the purpose for which we are called by God. As Christ followers, we are called to be eternally in worship and in fellowship with our God and Father. We have not yet arrived, so we press on toward the goal. And as we do, we maintain a mindset that is mature, and we stay on the course that we're on. When your life began as a follower of Jesus, you were at the start line of the race. The race has started for you now, and with a radio sharp focus, your ambition is to finish the race of this life with the full confidence that Jesus is standing at the finish line. We do not run alone, we run beside each other. And even more encouragingly, Christ has filled us with his spirit to guide us, to give us endurance, for this race can be difficult. But he's the one who brings us home. Wherever you are along the race course, keep focusing ahead. Keep living for and experiencing Christ. Don't let past distract you. And don't let detours cheat you away from becoming all that Jesus has already chosen you to become. Encourage one another to hold firm to the truth of the gospel. For one day we will worship before our God, our Lord and God, and sing his praise, marveling for eternity that we are invited and permitted to personally know our glorious Savior and Lord. Let us pray. Jesus, so thank you so much for rising from the dead, for giving us life, and for setting us on this course that we can experience life with you and grow in knowing you more intimately. I pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would strive with you to move forward to where you are waiting for us, to know you and worship you fully on that great day of resurrection. In your name, Jesus, we do pray. Amen.